0: Welcome to the 86th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Isendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the future of microservices, the monolith. Hey, so uh, congratulations, Brendan, on the new digs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Full disclosure, I have recently changed employers. I am now working for a company that does kind of Kubernetes and Docker container security monitoring, auditing, and it's a lot of fun. I'll throw a link to them in the show notes. I'm not going to call them out directly on air, but they run a... I'm sure they will provide for much more Docker jokes. Oh, yes. Many, many, many more. But I'm also drinking from the fire hose of Kubernetes right now, having... Never had the opportunity to run it um, in anger before, having in depth, yeah, having primarily been running either inside of System D or running um, Mesos Aurora. But as we've been commenting for a while, the industry seems to have decided to move wholesale to Kubernetes, and
1: industry has decided. And
0: I need to I need to get there. Um, I've got a little bit of time to spin up on the specifics. I mean. It, Running kubectl, that's not a problem. It's more of the the inner workings and why you choose which deployment strategies are the deeper under the covers, you know, the nastiness of how stateful sets actually implemented and how you debug and fix it as you move forward. So actually it's gonna, having mastery of the system. It's gonna be a, a fun new set of challenges for me to to kind of hop into and it'll provide content for this this podcast, which is great. Part of this um, ties into what we're
1: talking about today. Which was a pair of articles that I think Jack you found them, right? Yeah, I found uh this article on the news stack and it started channeling Kelsey Hightower. And he's usually a person to listen to out on the old internet. And it was proclaiming the monoliths are the way forward. And Deaths to microservices.
0: And that kinda goes counter to everything we've been told for the last, you know, 10 plus
1: years about the the direction the industry is moving. Yeah, everything has been microservice, microservice, microservice. If you're not decomposing and heading toward microservices, you're doing it wrong. And we will... And I will look down upon you if you dare admit that you're in a monolith.
2: So I can think of one figure that was kind of going against the grain. And as far as I can tell, as early as... Back in like 2016 2015, that was uh, David Hyman and Hansen, Hansen uh, the creator of Ruby on Rails, uh, and he actually wrote a blog a blog post called "The Majestic Monolith," where he talked about the, you know, the greatness of running a monolith versus uh, distributed systems. So, and uh, oddly enough, he makes some of the same points. He he does, and that's because I think you know they themselves, speaking of Basecamp, formerly. Um, uh, whatever their consulting company was, they just changed the name to Basecamp, uh, running Rails and running that, that company on the on Rails stack, uh, I think they saw the real benefits of keeping a monolith versus trying to break those out into independent systems.
0: Yeah, running running distributed systems, running microservices, running a service-oriented architecture adds... It's hard, inc- yo. Well, it adds a lot of complexity to your system because now you're not just dealing with running your application, but you're now dealing with um, consistency theorems. If you ever want to Look at the the Jepsen tests. There's a bunch of interesting content there. Actually, I'll throw a link into the show notes of one of the the Jepsen talks because he's he's really amusing to to listen to. And it it moves the complexity up the stack and it moves it closer to the end user, cl- closer to the operations team, closer to everybody else. And it's hard stuff. None of this yeah, is easy. Yeah, you,
1: you want your developers to have a good time, and microservices can remove complexity from. From what the developers are dealing with on a day-to-day basis, but it moves it into more of an operational sphere, where we've got to figure out, you know, how we keep consistency through, through the distributed application that we now have.
2: Yeah, that's and that's the a good whole because I I think that's where microservices or at least a good bit of the the paradigm for microservices came from, which was uh, you had these crotchety old school system who were uh, setting up these hard to deploy systems or hard to develop on systems. And so the developers were like, well, hey, you know, I can just run this little service on my laptop. And if I need this, I spin up this little service. And it it just seems so much easier. And in some ways, the advent of Docker,
1: which made it so very easy to run the same application anywhere. In some ways, it is a lot easier. In some ways, it makes it
0: much more easy to build a composable system. If you think about the way the Unix philosophy was originally, and kind of is now, but System D is pushing us out of that a little bit, into having lots of individual tools that do one thing, and they do that one thing well, and you string those tools together to build a larger, more complicated, more operable system. That was kind of the idea. That was sorry. That was one of the ideas that that was espoused as part of the service-oriented architecture or the microservices approach. That you had, you have an authentication daemon that's running, and it only needs itself, and then you have other services that that reference it and talk to it. But what a lot of folks don't, what a lot of folks are not careful about is circular dependencies or dependency loop or dependency chains where you no longer can run the authentication service by itself. You're no longer running any individual piece of your stack kind of in isolation. Everything has to be running with everything else, in which case, well, you have a monolith, but you also have these dozens of microservices you have to go and support and figure
1: out and debug and scale individually. This article points out the fact that when most people build a microservices-oriented architecture and break out all these components, what they've actually built is a distributed monolith, not an actual microservices-based architecture. And in this distributed monolith, you have data duplication, big red flag. You have the fact that service A can't run without service B and C, and there's no way to handle this in the same manner the services are so tightly interrelated even though they're different services
2: yeah and and honestly my experience at the companies i've worked at that has done microservices or some form of it that's all i have ever seen is where they're it's basically a distributed monolith that all microservices depend on each other if one of them goes down the system is everything goes down right so yeah and yeah
1: Totally, 100%. Everywhere I've seen a microservice-based architecture, I don't work for Google, I don't work for Netflix. But everywhere I've had experience with this architecture, what I've actually seen and dealt with is the side effects and of a distributed monolith, not a true microservices architecture.
0: That said, there are a lot of benefits to adopting lots of the paradigms that came along with soa and microservices in terms of having easier to reason about chunks of services Um, a lot of the container runtime stuff came out of out of these models as well so the ability to say no i have a a deployable artifact that i can run on basically anything in production it'll come up I know it'll come up the same way. It's not going to be coming up depending on if we did RPMs or if we did Deb's or if we did some other kind of crazy tarball explosion into the file system. Oh, did I have a
1: different version of that library? Oops.
0: Yeah. And it gets you out of a lot of the other dependency chains and a lot of the other pieces. And so a lot of really good things have happened because of these pushes towards the the 12 factor app, the stateless app, the, we're doing microservices, we're moving everything out of, we're, hell, even, even all the, the, the restful stuff back in the day when people were trying to move into this, oh, we're, everything's Web 2.0, and it it's better. The We aren't moving forward. We're, we're definitely moving in largely better ways, but a lot of
1: people want to shortcut the complexity parts of it, and you can't. You can usually just move the complexity around, and I find that I guess the royal we here as software engineers uh, we tend to be really faddish people. We latch on to the current fad and believe this is the way forward and pay less attention to it. does it actually solve the, the the problems that we have on hand.
0: I had a coworker uh, several jobs ago who was very, very, very bright, and he has since retired, but one of his favorite things to say to people was, so I'm going to answer your question, but I think you're asking me the wrong question." And he would answer the, the question they first asked. And then he would come back to them and say, I think the question you were trying to ask me was whatever. And then he would answer that one as well. So to give people the the context of you think you know what you want and you're not going about it the right way. Here is the rest of that. And sorry, that got tangenty.
2: I don't know. sounds
1: pretty valid to me.
2: Mm. And I, this, this is probably going back in the wrong direction, but I I do also think that, as you're saying, we picked up some good pieces from that. I I think one of the best things was Kubernetes, honestly, that now you have almost every major cloud provider offering some form of Kubernetes. There's some sort of standard out there now to be able to deploy Docker containers in a uh, composable manner. And I, I don't know if that would have came about years
1: ago. Totally. We've been in the proprietary cloud like the proprietary Unixes back in the day where everything is different. And thanks to these steps that that have happened that we've all participated in, we now have an open source standardized cloud that we, works everywhere.
0: Yeah, it's supported and run by pretty much every major player, most of the minor players. And you can run it in-house if you want.
1: And just because you're choosing to use Kubernetes as your platform doesn't, doesn't dictate that you're using a microservice architecture or running a monolith folks that i've worked with uh, in the past have monolithic style applications that they're working with but they're fairly small they easily fit in a container also a lot of monolithic
0: applications aren't designed to be run as one binary running on one host they're designed to be running hundreds of instances across hundreds of hosts because that or an instance per host across hundreds of hosts and they would all connect to a, a shared data store in the back end somewhere and probably talk to a, a similar pool of load balancers or, or whatever it was. And that model works inside Kubernetes that really well. That
1: model works really well. That model still works really well.
0: And Kubernetes automates and standardizes the idea of how do we do a rolling deployment? How do we, how do we upgrade things? How do we move traffic from, from one version to the next? How do we roll back? And does it in a way How do you that is,
1: disassociate the resources required by your application from do i need an m4 large or an m4 x large today
0: that problem exactly and all the configuration is in YAML, which is relatively readable and when you move cloud providers it is easier to move i'm not going to say it's exactly the same because all the cloud providers run different versions of kubernetes and one of the pain points classically of, of running Kubernetes yourself is upgrades. How do you go from you know 1.12 <laughs> to 1.14? It's, it's not an easy
1: process, but at Even least... in the cloud solution, it's not an easy process.
0: But at least there's a standard.
1: And it's the same that the people seem to agreed on. point I really want to make here is that monoliths or SOA cell application is a separate solution problem space from do you manage your your infrastructure, your platform with Kubernetes. Yes. Yes, they work together. They overlap. But we're we're solving different problems here, and it's important to highlight that rather than just assume Kubernetes is a microservices and that's the way forward or, or bust. That that doesn't solve everybody's problem.
2: Well, and isn't also what caused this just because, uh, what is it, Istio, or however you say it, is saying that they're, you know, basically going to abandon microservices and go back to a monolith so that's like the de facto or one of the de facto uh networking plugins for kubernetes they had what like a like a half a dozen pieces constituent pieces that was
0: their control plan and their uh, their monitoring stack and whatever else and so you had to run all of these different groups of of processes or controllers just to keep the thing up
2: and running right right mm-hmm. and and this was just for your networking stack <laughs>
0: Yes, when your networking stack consists. Do you remember
2: of, when it was just plug a couple of cables together? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me.
0: One of the things that I also really like about the the Kubernetes model in general is it makes you define your resource dependencies a little better. It doesn't it doesn't solve the problem entirely, but I've worked for exactly one organization, and it was only the group that I worked for in that organization that had a ordered list of after a total systems outage, what order do you start everything in? Assume that, you know, the the power technicians have turned power back onto the building. What do you do first? And like, what is the dependency? What can be done concurrently after that? How do you walk from, there is no power in the system to everything's back to production, one organization. And the Kubernetes model really helps you define things as code, so You can say, Hey, no, no no, this require this requires that and this requires this and you can then have the system described in a way that you can run then run parsers on and look for circular dependency loops and you can look for other other kind of issues of hey you're assuming that authentication's up, but authentication's assuming that DNS is up and DNS is assuming that and back and forth and back and forth.
1: Everything's always DNS. Well, yeah. And the modern version of that, of course, is when AWS US East One reboots again how do you get your
2: services back up? hmm Speaking, though, I mean, now, granted, I have no insider knowledge. I It's only based on the, you know, plethora of stuff I've read on the internet, but apparently Amazon, one of the few things they do really well is services. Like, uh, you know, back in the day when uh, Bezos said, I want everything to be a service, I, I, that was the one thing that a lot of employees took do, took very seriously, and he took very seriously, and... I think it shows with AWS. I mean, they are very service, serious about services. Yeah.
1: And, and I think that kind of goes back to the, the 12 factor application style that has given us so much of a standard of how do you build an application? How do you ship configuration to it? How do you extract log information from it? How do you build an application in sort of a standard way that interoperates with, your, with every other application you have, your operational toolkit? And isn't a completely different piece of alien tech that you're trying to fit in and somehow make work.
0: And I would also argue that AWS is effectively the most publicly successful service oriented architecture to have been deployed yes. anywhere. Yes. They have how many hundreds of services at this point? And by that, the Steve Yegge memo that came out all those years ago talking about the platform rant, the. Each of those pieces is designed to be a self-sufficient standalone entity, only really bound by the IAM policies and a couple of other tiny bits of, of like core networking glue. But when you want an RDS instance, or you want whichever whichever piece of S three it is, you just ask for it, and it is not. It, it doesn't assume that your project is running. It doesn't assume anything else. It's it's a service you call.
1: And RDS going offline doesn't take Route Fifty Three offline.
0: Yeah, and internally. Amazon also says that S3 is a service that you can use internally to Amazon, but you can't you can't go in through a back door. You can't you know you can't do a lookup directly. You have to go through the public API. And that was the whole point of that the platform rant that was written all those years ago. It,
1: exactly. That's a good one to throw in the show notes. That's a great, great read.
0: Anybody who hasn't read that needs to stop right now and it's
1: just... older at this point, but Yeah, it's a great read that if you Operate cloud-based infrastructures. You should know.
2: Well, I know we're going off on a tangent here, but I, I'll just say that any company that dog foods that kind of stuff because that was the thing, right? Is that they? Bezos said there would be no private APIs. You, if you're going to develop a service and you and it's going to be public, we, internally we must consume it as well. And I see other companies when they dog food like that, whatever they're working on is better because obviously they have to use it just like developers or we have to use it. And it actually gets used.
1: It's used in real-world cases, but this espouses the point that a couple of these articles are making: that microservices and and service-oriented architectures is a solution set for when you need to scale to massive proportions, when you have thousands of employees and huge deployments of many applications, really, much like a cloud provider, Amazon, much like Google and all the services that they offer. Uh, Microsoft, um, the other companies I'm going to name are companies that you would have heard of before, but in a lot of cases, microservices is a solution that that fits and works with and enables companies to scale to these massive proportions. And there's a cost to that, that these companies will gladly hire a team of people to work as their sole job to manage your monorepo, their monorepo, and keep that in sync and working and all the bits glued together. But for a smaller or even a medium-sized company, the cost to run a true microservice architecture is really quite high and not something that they have the resources to dedicate people to.
0: Especially if you're in something like a sustainable mode startup where you're not going for growth, you're not going for acquisition. You're just going for, I have a good product, I think I can run it at a profit, I don't need to get insane about it. Do you want to spend the extra engineering time to push into a service-oriented architecture or microservices architecture because it's a cool thing to do and you can attract talent by telling people that they're working on that kind of toolchain, or Resident do you say in development, or do you say, "Hey, we're going to be working on, you know, a monolithic application that does the thing it does really, really well, and we're focusing on getting that out the door, and not that out the door, and decomposing it as we go," because at some point your developer's time is limited, and you have to choose where you're pushing stuff out to, and again, with a service-oriented architecture that requires more operational complexity. And you can hire Amazon to do it for you, but that's really expensive to let them run it all for you or you hire operation staff. And they're also not cheap because to get, it, to get it done right and to get it to scale correctly and to get it to be resilient and to get it to be monitored properly, all of those things are, are complex pieces of problems. And they're all doable. I mean, the three of us have individually done that kind of work. But
1: it's... I mean, what we've done for so long... Is so much visibility work, as any listener to the podcast will will know from the past. And you can set up visibility so- solutions for your company, but that's rarely a project with an end goal. It it's rarely something that you can just stand up and then pivot to another project and then pivot to another project. You have to put in the time and effort to maintain your visibility system so they keep working. They keep expiring data correctly. They deal with the spike from extra data from a different team, answer questions about how to make certain alerts work in a certain way. So that's, that's part of the cost you're paying is maintaining the infrastructure around your microservice architecture requires, requires some dedicated work. That's not just accomplish a project.
0: And we're also not saying that you should blindly go back to the old bad days of the monolith where you had one unwieldy code base, one oh binary gosh, you, no. you shipped, and depending on how you called it, different code paths were run. Like that's that's not what we're saying. There is there's a You've lot of similar
1: to that binary with this strange name.
0: There's a lot of deficiencies in a lot of software development practices that that got enshrined in what people think of as the monolith. And that's not what we're espousing here. That's not what we're saying you should go back to because a lot of those things were just as bad before and they're just as bad. Now they they didn't magically get better because distributed systems are hard. It's just trying to do both at the same time, trying to have your monolith that is weird and distributed across platforms. And now you have concurrency and you have consistency problems and you have network partitions and it just, it just got a lot harder to make things work correctly.
2: Also, uh, to make reference to what you said earlier, Jack, uh, usually when you bring in service oriented architecture, you bring in one of the favorite uh, debates of mine, which is a monorepo. Because uh, I mentioned the M word, didn't I? One brings in the other. <laughs> they do seem culturally related. I mean, it makes and it And there's make, good arguments for both. Th- there is. And and it makes sense, right? If you're gonna do a monorepo I mean if you're gonna do a, a service uh oriented architecture or microservices, you're gonna have a common set of libraries or things that you're gonna pull into these various different pieces. So it makes sense to try and have them all in the same place so that if you need to update, you update one thing, but anyway. It's it's just fun how the 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 those two are always paired together almost.
0: Well, philosophically I like the monorepo. I I like the idea that if you have a test harness or something, and you hook it up to the monorepo, you can test the entire contents of the repo and every dependency and every external callout at a given point in time, at a, at a given snapshot or at a given um, commit reference. You can say, did everything work at this point with all the dependencies that we've declared and all of the other pieces that we're doing? And that's really cool. But
1: being able to roll back your entire infrastructure with a git commit? Well, I,
0: Magical. Better yet, when somebody says, "Hey, I'm going to upgrade this library we're using here for network communication because I need it for you know widget that I'm developing X," when you run your test suite, assuming that you have all your tests in place, because everybody should have tests, right? Right. It will also validate that, hey, does this actually work everywhere else? Like, do, do all the other things that call that same library version? Because we didn't want to have five versions of Netty or whatever it was. Does it all still work? Do do all the other applications? the other pieces of this system still function. And that's really cool because you can then be a lot more assured that you have the right pieces in the right places. And when you say, yeah, I've upgraded whichever security library has been afflicted this week, that you know that when you upgrade it and the next build goes out, everything is getting that update and you're not going to have orphan pieces of code that nobody's touched in a year or two years because nobody wants to touch the old broken thing. It's like, no, you just recompile it off the off of master and you go. So philosophically, monorepos are really cool. Uh, just in practice, I've not seen them work terribly well yet.
1: I've not seen them work in practice. And really what I've seen in practice is you need someone to maintain the workings of the monorepo, whatever build system you're using, etc. And most companies aren't willing to invest in that person, but they really want a monorepo. And you you can't you have to have both to be successful. I will now talk like Captain Kirk
0: <laughs> and if there's enough listener interest, of course we'll do an entire episode on the mono versus multi repo approach, but without without more prodding and prompting, I don't feel like there's enough
1: yeah, that's a different episode,
0: but I don't think there's no, there's enough there there to sustain an entire episode by itself. So, unless a dear listener really wants to hear more about it, we probably won't do one in the near future.
1: Hey, write it and let us know.
0: Please do. Communication is always good. Please take the time to rate the show in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows you've recorded or topics you'd like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. Or use at Operations FM on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 86th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks and good night. Soap APIs.